How many of you love Jesus? How many of you want Jesus? More of him in your life. Did you know that Satan wants you worse than you want Jesus? It just crossed my mind this week, not as like a revelation or anything. It just crossed my mind as I I thought about the text that we're going to look at. That he will do nothing, Satan, will do nothing, stop at nothing to get you to stumble. Satan will stop at nothing his temptations, his his demonic helpers will stop at nothing to get you to doubt. And and he will stop at nothing to to help you to compromise. He will stop at nothing to get you to feel extra good about yourself. Satan wants you to be proud. He wants you to sit back and criticize others. He wants you to gossip. He even wants you to do absolutely nothing but just sit back and enjoy the ride. He wants you that bad. He will stop and he will use every tool. He will use everything at his disposal to get you to do all of these things and even more. I just listed what first came to mind. But there is only one thing that is not in Satan's playbook. He will not do it. He can't do it. He doesn't want to do it. He will never die for you. That's something that isn't even part of his consideration. But that also shows us how bad God wants us more than Satan, that he would die for us. You say, I thought Jesus died for you. Yes, I know. Jesus was fully God. God died for us by sending his one and only son to die upon a cross. And this morning, I'm going to talk about the completeness of sin. It's everywhere. That's how complete it is. You don't go anywhere. You cannot go anywhere to escape the influence of sin. There's just, there's no place that far. There's no place that safe. You can't even come here and be free from sin. But Jesus' death was the basis of my faith, and my faith is the victory. This morning, we're going to continue our examination of this topic of sin, why Christ died so that we could live. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning. From a distance, they may not seem related or even corollary, but I promise you both of these texts, uh, one really depends upon the other and relate to one another, and they provide a powerful insight that may be able to help us to withstand the onslaught of sin and the temptation that comes our way. The video that 
you saw just a moment ago, said, I'll be at your church, I'll be at your home, I'll be at your work. He said, at church, that's just an odd place that you would think sin would be. It's the first place I think it would be. If I were Satan, I think if I were going to hit a valuable target, you want to hit the headquarters, right? Let's hit the headquarters, so let's, let's hit the church. If there's a secondary target, it would be the home. So if I can destroy the home, I can destroy the church. Luke 22 is where I'm going to ask you to be at this morning, and let's stand together. We're going to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 22, we're going to talk about the completeness of sin. It's everywhere. Luke 22, let's begin in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again... Strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready. I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Uh, Father, I pray that your spirit would be alive and active and we know it's present. But Father, may you bear upon the remainder of our time together upon the word that has been read and will subsequently be preached and that your work that you seek to be accomplished today, that your will will be done as a result. Father, may every heart, may every mind and every ear be attentive completely this morning, that we waste not one solitary second of your time, that we ourselves may be built up, that we too may be strengthened against the completeness of sin, and never again turn a deaf ear, a deaf eye, a mind or a heart, that we'll never turn toward it again. And allow it where it should not be. Father, thank you for this time that you're giving to us. And thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And be seated. This text is rather interesting. It's, it's to me, one of those texts of scriptures that kind of grab your attention. And, and not that it seems out of place. It is placed exactly where the Holy Spirit deems it ought to be. But it's what is said in just a few amount of verses. As a matter of fact, really just one verse just kind of opens the lid on a bunch of questions that I have always had. Verse 31 begins this way. And, and if you have a Bible where these words are in red, then you know that that means Jesus himself is speaking these words. And he says, Simon, Simon. Now, my first question is this. Who's Simon? That's Peter. Why isn't he calling him Peter? Simon was his pre-Christian name. Exactly. Because in just a short amount of time, you've got Peter that's going to be acting very much like a non-Christian. He does this to get his attention. And I think for good reason. 
Peter's going to revert back to some very pre-Christian behavior. And this is the same Peter who just a few chapters before said that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember Matthew 16, and Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, the King James says. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. And I tell you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. He's talking about the confession that Peter made. And that was a great confession. And Peter did say it. He's about to say some other things too. He went from telling the disciples and telling Jesus that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, to telling a little girl, I don't even know who he is. Simon, Simon, I got his attention. And, and by the way, if, if Simon could do this, so can we. We call it backsliding. Your Christian life is never static. You can be on the mountaintop today. You give in to Satan tomorrow, you see where you'll be. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. The meaning of this verse is really interesting, and, and, and to a degree, it's, it's kind of uncertain because the word that's translated demanded is also the word asked. Satan has asked in, in the NIV, demanded. Th this word actually is found nowhere else in the New Testament. Uh, we, we really don't have any other context to really gauge and, and, and get any more insight on what this verse or what this particular word actually means. The closest and most corollary word that we find here that's relative to this word demanded or asked, we have to go all the way back into the Old Testament. We have to go to the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, where Satan was coming to Jesus or coming to God. And, and he said, I, I, you know, well, have you considered my servant Job? And, and Satan was asking permission to, to get uh, Job and his family and to bring all that hardship. That's the closest corollary word that we have. So we can imagine that, that the, the, the outcome we would expect would be kind of similar, especially the fact that Jesus says that Satan has demanded to have you. So there's some possession there. He wants to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. How many of you ever sifted wheat? Have you ever sifted wheat back in the day here? Okay. I, I have sifted flour. Okay, that's not the same as sifting wheat. So if you raise your hand and you just sifted flour, that's not the same. But I, I've sifted wheat, right? And, and you put wheat in this, in this silver canister and it's got a handle to it and it's got a, you know, like a jack-in-the-box handle and you turn and you see that stuff and you see that wire and, it, and it's sifting through. And, and if you ever notice that what comes out on the other side is a lot different than the wheat you put in there. It's because that white, it's, it's, the white wheat there is just it's ground and, and it's under that pressure for just that, that brief moment, but it's also repetitive. I know this may sound silly, but if I were a little piece of wheat or a little piece of flour, I don't think that would be a pleasant experience being sifted or being agitated to the point where I'm coming apart. I, I just don't think that Satan was really having, having anything in mind of something pleasant for Peter. I think it's kind of interesting that he was singling out Peter. He was going to sift him like wheat. 
Satan is going to shake him violently. But in verse 32, he begins a transition, but I, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, this is interesting. The word I is emphatic. Now, in the Greek, what that means is what receives more attention than anything else in this verse is the letter I, if, if that's the word that's emphatic, and we can tell by the way it's written. And it's emphatic. What does this mean here? I gets the attention because Jesus wants to let us know that he's still the center of attention. Satan may ask you or ask for you to, to be sifting you like wheat, but Jesus says, I have prayed for you. Number one is Jesus. And number two, he's praying. My question is, if Jesus thinks it's important to pray, how much more should we think it's important to be praying? And what an amazing picture here. He's communicating that he is, he's verbally saying that he's the greatest power here, not Satan and definitely not Peter. Like the old saying goes, the eyes have it. Jesus has got it. He's the greatest power here. But notice what he prayed. He's praying that your faith may not fail. Now that's interesting. Considering what's about to happen and what we're going to see transpiring in verses to come, he's praying for his faith so that, and you can see the remainder part of 32, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, that's kind of a relief, isn't it? Because the way that Peter's going to be treated, he's not going to be that way the whole time. That there'll be a time in which he's going to turn back, back around. We call that repentance. He's going to help his brothers who have also failed. Peter said to him, almost as if he didn't hear what just happened. Peter said, hey, I'm ready. I, I, Lord, I, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Satan, or Peter, did you just not hear me? Satan has asked and demanded that I hand him to you. That he will violently tear you apart. You're telling me you're ready? Let me make something clear to you, Peter. Just let me, just so you'll know what's going on. Jesus says in verse 34, Peter, it's dark, but it's about to get a lot darker. Because by the time the morning comes and that rooster starts doing his thing, you're going to tell someone that you don't even know me, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, what have you got to say to that? Peter, I'm telling you, he is demanding to have you. Don't you tell me that you're ready to go where I'm going to go. He's already told the disciples that where he's going, they cannot come. Don't sit here and tell me that. It lets us know a big truth about sin. That sin is as prevalent when you are close to Jesus as you are when you're not close to Jesus. The temptation to sin is, is when you are as close to him as when you're not as close to him. You can't get any closer than the relationship that, G, that Jesus had with Peter, James, and John. His inner, you don't get any closer than that. And I know that we get all over Judas and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of, of, of coinage. 
Peter did it for free. And it's recorded in the same chapter usually. He betrayed just as much as Judas did. But there's a difference. There's a big difference. Here's the difference. Let's go back to verse 32, and and we're going to see something kind of unfold here. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Well, hold on, Jesus. If it were me, if it were me, Jesus, can I change that a little bit? Here's what I would say. Peter, I have prayed for you that you wouldn't deny Christ three times. Why didn't he say that? Why did he say, I'm praying that your faith may not fail? I've already told you, faith is a victory that overcomes the world. Because faith, more than words, more than my actions, faith. Who and what do I really believe? That's the deciding factor. Jesus knows this because he has infinite knowledge. He knows this, and we know this because the text tells us this. Here's why. I have prayed that your faith may not fail, but listen to that next word, and when you have turned again. Peter, you're going to say you don't know me three times, but there's going to be a moment right after that when you're going to turn back And you've got a lot of brothers and you've got some other disciples here who are going to need you. You strengthen them. His denial of Christ for those three times wasn't the end of the line for Peter. Jesus knew that because he told Peter, when you turn back, in other words, when you repent and you will repent, you're going to turn back around and you're going to strengthen the people that need the strength. And let's not doubt for a moment all the silly stuff that that Peter did and he said during his time. But listen, when Jesus ascended back into heaven, it was on like Donkey Kong for the Apostle Peter. You ever read through the first part of Acts and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. What do I mean? Yeah, he, he, he betrayed, or rather, he denied Christ three times. But here's what he did in the New Testament. First of all, he led the effort to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, he preached at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. In chapters 3 and 4 and 5, he preached some more. And he was the solitary, singular head of the church, the leader of the church in early Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, in verses 14 through 25, he expanded the church and say, Samaritans, you can come and you can worship the same God. In chapters 10 and 11 and chapter 15, he said to the Gentiles, you too can worship. The one true God. Let's not deny anything for one moment the work that Peter did. But there was a time in his life when he was as close to Jesus as any one person possibly can, and he failed him. Don't you tell me that there are any safe places anymore where you cannot be tempted and fall. Don't tell me that we must be diligent and we must double and triple and quadruple our efforts to make sure that we keep an eye out for the enemy. This passage right here was a wake-up call for Peter. This changed his life for good. We know this because he wrote a couple of letters and we find them late in the, old, late in the New Testament. Why don't you turn with me to one of his letters. It's the first one that he wrote. And it's called First Peter. 
While you're turning there, let me give you some background information on, on his letters. He was writing to people who had been exiled, Christians specifically, because of persecution. They had been kicked out, gone over, they, they were away from their homes. They were in exile. These guys had been through the ringer. They had been sifted as wheat. Satan had them. Roman persecution was tough. He knew a little something about going through hard times himself. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he was writing some letters of encouragement. And he wrote First and Second Peter for that audience. And he gave them quite a bit of instruction. One of the things that he shared with them was how to handle temptation. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8, he writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone or seeking whomever to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, Satan's a dangerous enemy. He is a serpent who can bite us when we least expect it. In Revelation chapter 12, he's a destroyer. We know that in Zechariah and Revelation, again, he's an accuser. We know that he does have great power. He has great intelligence. He has a host of demons who assist him in his attack. He is a formidable enemy. And we must never joke about him. I, I, I love humor. I, I love to be funny I, because I love to laugh. But there's just some jokes I don't tell. Some jokes I don't even want to know that I could tell. I'm not going to joke about Satan. I'm not going to joke about the enemy because he's no laughing matter. You think you may be laughing at him, but the last joke will be on you. And trust me, he'll have his laugh at you. He tells us to be sober-minded, to have our minds under com complete control when it comes to our conflict with Satan. Sometimes we invite Satan because we don't even think properly. We do stupid things. We act dumb, and then we are, we're left wondering, well, why am I being attacked the way that I am? Why did I fall? Why did I commit that terrible sin? Why are you playing with it to begin with? be a question I have. Part of the soberness is realizing who's the real enemy. And we've got to be careful here, and I, and I think a word of caution ought to be uh, included here, not to blame everything on the devil. Some, some people see a demon behind every bush and blame Satan for their, their headaches, flat tires, and their high rent, but it's not the way it is. Be sober-minded. You better be watchful. Not everything is as it seems. I've been surprised sometimes and then other times not surprised at all to see behavior by certain folks within the church and I'm, I'm watching them and I watch you. You may not think, I'm, I'm watching you, I do. 
And I think to myself, the trouble's coming. I can just see it. Trouble's coming. And then something happens and life begins to fall apart. A relationship begins to fall apart. And I'm, why should it have been any surprise? It shouldn't come as a surprise when we are not thinking properly. We're not watching. We are not keeping a watchful eye. What happens? That adversary, the devil, he does what? He prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, let me, I read some stuff about lions. When I read this text, I want to know something. What does he mean by a lion here? And so I started reading about lions, and I started reading about how lions hunt. I did not know this, but I think it's interesting. Did you know that a lion, when he's going to attack a group of animals, he does not necessarily always go after the weakest person? As a matter of fact, that's not really on his agenda most of the time. When a lion is crouched and he's hidden, he's hidden in the bushes and he sees that pack of animals coming, the only thing that he knows he has to do, he doesn't have to defeat all of them. He only has to defeat one. So here's what he'll do. He'll start running. And all that he has to do is get one person separated from the rest of the bunch. And then he's going to run that person until they can run no more. And then he's got them. It tells us the danger of being apart for way too long. And I have seen it far more than I ever really want to recall. I've got stories after stories. Church members, they come in and they'll come in for a little while, but then they'll go out. Won't come no more for whatever reason. I can promise you this, you are never hurting anybody else more than you're hurting yourself when you do that. When you separate yourself from the pack, you're doing yourself more harm than anybody else. You're breaking my heart. You're breaking the heart of those around you. I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here this morning, but even still, I just want to make sure you know it. But there's one person that I haven't even talked about whom you're going to break their heart, and that's Jesus himself. Satan, he's prowling. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to get out by yourself. That's what he wants you to do. But listen to what he says to these exiles. Resist him. Firm in your what? Faith. What did Jesus pray that would remain strong for Peter? Faith. Peter learned a lesson. Way to go, Peter. He says, you better resist him. And how do we do that? You've got to be firm in your faith. Pastor, what do you mean? What do you mean resist him in the faith? Our faith in God. Our faith in God. Paul actually wrote how we can do it. You want to know how to strengthen your faith? Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. 
you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all, you stand firm. You stand firm. Let me, let me go back to that text, and I want you to turn there with me just, just for a second. I promise you we're almost done. But I can't let you see. I can't, I can't let y'all out of here, and, and let's escape this. Let's go to Ephesians 5, or rather Ephesians 6 very quickly. Because there's a verse that I just didn't read, but I want to make sure it's read. Ephesians chapter 6, let's start in verse 13. Therefore you take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now the belt and a suit of armor connected everything. You couldn't have the rest of it unless you had your belt. Your belt was key. The belt of truth. What is our truth? Well, where do we get our truth? We get it from the Word of God. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, a lot could be said about that one, in all circumstances, not some, but in all, you take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, he doesn't even tell you to fight. Paul didn't say how to use the sword as a weapon. He only tells us to do one actual thing after we've put on the armor. Listen to the next verse. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. These folks knew something about what, what, what it means to withstand the evil, the evil one. If you never exercise your faith, you will, have, you will never have enough faith. That shield will not be as big as you want it to be. It, 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 will be, it will be easy to penetrate. Why? Because I just don't use my faith a lot. I, I just don't step out where I cannot see. I don't step out and trust the Lord when everything on paper just doesn't seem to make sense. I just want to step out and please the Lord. That makes for a very small shield. No wonder you're always under attack. It's a terrible cycle of defeat. You've lost and you don't even know it yet. So let me give you three words to remember about the enemy. Let me give you three words. Number one, respect. You better have a respect of of who the enemy is. Not a respect of honor. I believe that's a different kind of respect. I'm talking about a respect of potential danger. I have a chainsaw in my my storage shed that I can cut down trees with. It's got a very powerful engine to it and it has a very sharp uh, chain of blades. I respect that chainsaw. Not that it has authority over my life. I'm the one who runs the chainsaw. But if I don't run it right, it's going to run me. But I respect that chainsaw for what it can do. Because if I don't run it well, if I put my foot in the wrong place, then I could get hurt, maybe even killed. There's an old church sign that used to say, you give Satan an inch and he'll become your ruler. You give him one compromise and that's all he needs. You don't need to compromise everywhere else. You just need to compromise one area. That's all that he wants you to do. 
you're here this morning and you've given Satan way too much, mainly because you don't respect him and what he can do to you. You've taken too lightly the role of church in your life. You've taken too, right, too lightly the role of the scriptures and the commands of obedience that it asks you and commands you and directs you to live by. Maybe you're living by rules of cynical criticism. It's exactly what he wants you to have. You better respect him. The second word, recognize. Recognize. I'm, I'm going to tell you, give you three, three litmus tests, okay? Which I think are, these are just, they just came to me, and I was just thinking this week about how do you recognize the work of Satan? It's easy to recognize the bad stuff. So let's just take like, the, like sin, like drunkenness and adultery. Let's put all of that into, okay, we know that type of category. That we can see, okay? Let me give you three other things you better remember. Number one, look for the beauty. Look for the beauty. Eve saw that the fruit was good to eat. That's all Satan had to do. He had to convince her that it was beautiful. Look for the beauty. Look for the simple Look for the simple. Satan's greatest tool. I used to, I heard this illustration years ago. Satan has a tool or has his tools laid out on a table and and they all have price tags based upon their worth to him. And then right in the middle is a tool of of, of just greater value than all the other tools around it. Greater than, than anything else. The price tag was in the millions. And all that it was was a wedge. Because all that Satan needs is to take that wedge and he'll find one fault, one little crack in your life and all he's got to do is just put that wedge there. And he doesn't even have to hit it hard. All he has to do... My, uh, growing up, we had a wood stove and I would have to help my dad with wood. Cutting down trees and, and get them. And we had a log splitter. Some days we didn't have a log splitter. And we had to use an axe and a, and a maul and, and a wedge. And you know something? To get that piece of wood split, I didn't have to hit the wedge really hard to begin with. I first had to set it. I would take that wedge and, and, and I would just sit it right there on the top of that piece of wood and I would take that maul and just kind of tap it. I just had to get it started. That's all I had to do. Where I could take my hands off and that wedge was there in place without anybody touching it. It would stand up straight. And then I'd get ready. That wedge is right where I needed to be. And I would take that maul and I'd sling it over my shoulders and hit it. And boom. And you could hear it. You could hear the wood cracking apart. What God had put together, you, you could hear, you know, you could hear just it coming separate and apart. You hear it cracking. You'd hit it again, and, and you'd see the, the sap, the, the lifeblood of that tree. You could, you could just see it starting to, to creep up a little bit where, where you're doing the damage. And you keep hitting it, and what was one had now just become two. And then what was two, I, I could make it into four. I, I split it up until it was the right size. I had sifted that wood as wheat. Sometimes that's all that he needs, just something simple, not complex. That's too easy to spot. Oh, and look for the good. Look for the good. 
Even Satan is disguised, the Bible says, as an angel of light. If you go looking for Satan with a a pitchfork and a pointy tail, you'll never find him. That's not what he looks like. You know what Satan looks like? Your greatest dreams. Satan looks like your pleasures. Satan looks like the things that make you happy. Because those are the things that he wants to use. He wants to use the good and turn it for evil. But let me give you the last word. It's called resist. Peter says that you only resist by being firm in your faith. Now, Paul wrote in the text in Ephesians 6 that it was a suit of armor, not a suit of clothes to go to church with or like you're going to go out on a date or a tuxedo that you're going to get married in. This is a suit of armor. When you put on armor, it means you're going to start fighting. I am afraid that we are all too eager to put on the armor, but we're not afraid to fight. Or that we are afraid to fight, excuse me. We'll gladly put on all those pieces that Paul had mentioned, but we want to stay in the camp. I want to equip myself, and I want everything that God has given to me, but I don't want to go out and do anything. There's a reason why we talk about soldiers when they've been in a battle. We call them battle-hardened. The reason why we can compare a soldier, one that has been in the battle versus one who's never been in a battle, we would choose, if we're going to choose, which soldier do you want to go with you? I want to go with the one who's been fighting and has overcome and has won. That's who I want. That's who we all should want, those who are putting on the full armor of God and fighting and resisting the devil. By being firm in your faith, I'm telling you, sin's everywhere. It's in your heart, it's in your mind, it's in your home, it's going to be in your car, it's at your work, it's here at this church, it's in your Sunday school rooms, it's in the hallways when you're walking, whatever, it's, it's everywhere. Our, our forefathers of the faith knew it too. They knew where the enemy was. And they knew that as a believer, we could not sit back ever. We have to resist. It's a battle. Encamped along the hills of light, ye Christian soldiers rise. And press the battle ere the night shall veil the glowing skies against the foe in veils below. Let all our strength be hurled. Faith is the victory we know that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory. 
that overcomes some of my problems. It may be your faith. But faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us everything that we need. Everything that we need to overcome. Now, Lord, it does not mean that there's not the potential for some failure. There may be some failure here this morning. But, Father, what I love about who you are is that by your mercy, by your grace, you and you have commanded us, one another, to pick our, our fallen comrades, to never leave a soldier behind. And we resuit ourselves with the armor that you have given. And we proceed and we fight again. God, I'm going to pray for the one who's battle-hardened this morning, who's weary. God, help them in their faith. I pray for the one who's been fighting and they've had some defeats. Father, help them maybe renew their set of armor. Just, just to start again and fight the good fight. Father, I think my greatest prayer is left for the one who's here with shiny armor. No kinks, no dings, no stains. They've already been defeated. They may look and they may act and they may talk the way they need to look, act, and talk, but they're already defeated and maybe they don't even know that they're defeated. Father, would you give them the strength to stand up, to take their sword, hold up their shield, and by the gospel of peace, they go out and make disciples. Lord, your word says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. Father, I pray for the ones here. I pray for that soul this morning who's, they, they've been following along, but they really haven't grasped everything because they've, they don't have a suit of armor to put on because they have never, by faith and repentance, they have never come to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that, Lord, as soon as we start singing, that there won't be any moment of hesitation, that everyone that I have prayed for this morning, Lord, that they will make their way down to this altar. If they need Jesus, Father, let them come, that I can show them in the Word of God. For those who need to get up and fight and to live by faith, Father, let them come. For the ones with the, with the battle-hardened armor, Father, let them come to receive rejuvenation and strength. Father, I pray your will be done. 
as we finish this sermon, as we finish this service, Lord, I pray, God, that your will be done in this response.